God calls a man named Micah, which means, who is like our God, in the 8th century BC during the same time as the prophet Isaiah. During this time, the people of Israel were breaking their covenant with God. So God commands Micah to declare God's coming judgment to Israel. This judgment would come at the hands of two great empires, Assyria and Babylon. Micah declares in chapter 3 verse 8, I am filled with strength, with the Spirit of God, and with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. Micah reminds the people of the covenant promise that they were meant to be a blessing to all nations. That required true worship, justice, and love. But Israel chose to reject their obligations. God must confront evil and destroy it, but offers hope that His covenant love and promises are more powerful than human evil. Chapter 1 and 2 warns that God Himself will appear and judge the cities of Israel because the leaders and prophets have gained wealth at the expense of the people. From chapter 2 verses 12 and 13, Micah moves to encourage the faithful that just as God himself will appear to judge, God himself will shepherd the remnant of his people. In chapter 3, again, Micah accuses Israel's leaders and prophets. He says that they run the land through bribery, that they favor the wealthy and oppress the poor. God will bring a disaster through the evil empires of Assyria and Babylon, who will come and defeat the people of Israel, destroying their cities. This judgment will culminate with the destruction of the temple. However, Micah returns to his promise of hope. God will restore his people, rebuild his temple, and will be with them once more. Micah declares that the faithful will say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that God may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. This section of the book develops the idea of hope through a series of poems, which focus entirely on the future hope of Israel and the nations. It is important to recognize that these poems not only promise that God will save the remnant, but that all the nations of the world will be brought together under God's kingdom. After the 70 years spent in Babylonian exile, God will bring His people back to the land He gave them through His covenant promise. As Micah 4 verse 10 declares, You shall be rescued. There, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. In the new Jerusalem, a new king from the line of David will come from the town of Bethlehem, and God will establish His kingdom and confront all evil. Good morning, City. I'm so excited to be with you this morning to be able to bring God's Word. Um, a couple of months ago, James asked me the question over a cup of coffee. He said, would you like to preach from the Minor Prophets? And I was excited. Then he said, do you want to preach from the book of Micah? And I nearly got up out of my chair um, at the opportunity. Don't get me wrong, I was nervous as well. I am nervous. But the book of Micah is so close to my heart that I just couldn't give up the opportunity. So let me tell you why. Some of you might know that my little boy, he's nearly two now, his name is Micah. And uh, I always have to tell people that he's named after the prophet, not the hardware store. So in case you're wondering, his name is spelt with an H at the back. Um, let me tell you how he got his name. When my wife Alyssa and I heard that we'd be having a little boy, 
she came up with a whole list of names. Most of them really good, in fact. There was just one problem. I didn't like any of them. Not a single one. But instead of giving her a list of options, I gave her one. Micah. And then I just bided my time. And she made me wait it out. Because she only agreed to his name two minutes after he was born. But okay, eventually I went out and he was named Micah, so I'm just really, really thrilled. Um, let me tell you why the name Micah is so important to me. What it actually means, first of all, is it means who is like our God. But above that, I actually have three reasons for why this name means so much to me and why I wanted to name my little boy um, after this. The first is my admiration of the prophet himself. Because what Micah does is he's given the task by God to be able to bring a message of judgment against the people of Israel, but also a message of grace and of hope and of restoration. And what inspires me is that Micah doesn't just cut out the bad news. He faithfully proclaims both. So I'm inspired by his courage and I'm inspired by his bravery and by his obedience. The second thing is that um, in the book of Micah, he describes to us what God actually requires of us. And he says in chapter 6, verse 8, What does God want of you, O man, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord? And I'm just so touched by the simplicity of it. This is not a complex instruction. It's straightforward. And I love that. But then there's a third reason as well. You see, in spite of the simplicity of this expectation that God has of us, none of us can meet it. I know that I can't meet that standard. And the book actually gives a promise of a coming Savior who will do that which I can't. He will fulfill to the Lord what I can't do. And so I can rely on him in faith. And so if you take these three things together, that's what I hope for my little boy. I hope that he will have the courage to love truth and to speak it honestly. I hope that he will do justice, that he will love mercy, and that he will walk humbly with his God. And of course, I hope that he will come to know the Lord as his Savior as well. So you can see it's really special for me to be able to share from this book, from this passage with you this morning. My heart is exploding just to get into this text. But before I actually read the text, I just want to give you a little bit of background. I know we've had the video, but let me just highlight a few little points again. The first is that Israel was prospering at the time, or at least some of them were, but at the expense of others. You see, business, government, local leadership, they were operating out of a motive of greed. And they were corrupt, they were exploiting the people. And there was a clear intent to abuse their power. This was not accidental. It was not incidental. It was strategic. And God stood against this. The second thing that I want to highlight from the video is that their problems were spiritual as well. It wasn't just commercial. You see, because the prophets and the priests at the time, instead of actually helping the people and leading them to God, they were offering false assurance of God's blessing and of his favor. And they were even peddling that for money for their own dishonest gain. And the people had not turned from the Lord, 
And they had actually started to fashion for themselves idols out of wood. They'd begun to carve idols. They'd begin to consult sorcerers and palm readers and fortune tellers. To put it bluntly, they'd abandoned God and had begun to fashion a God to their own liking. And so the third thing we should know as we get into this passage is that God declared that he would punish his people and that he would bring discipline upon them. But this discipline would come at the hands of their enemies. So where we pick up in chapter 5, when there's an assault on the city of Jerusalem, this is actually part of God's plan. This is part of his way of restoring the people back to him. So if you have a Bible, you can, uh, you can pick it up and you can read with me, or you might be able to follow on the screen. I'm going to read chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, for a siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be leader in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give him up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name is God, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So my first point, if you're taking notes, is a city under siege. When we pick up this passage, what's happening is that the king of Assyria has actually led a siege against Jerusalem. He has the city already encompassed. And this is where we find Micah speaking to the people and bringing them this word of prophecy. The people were outclassed, they were outarmed, and they were scared. They knew that they were not going to win this war. The only hope that they had was their high city walls. Even their king was one who they couldn't really rely on. Micah says that the attack was so successful that it was so dangerous that the enemy could almost reach out and touch the cheek of their king. And in fact, the king at the time, King Hezekiah, what he had done is he had teetered between potentially paying homage or taxes to the king of Assyria to keep him at bay. But he couldn't decide which way he was going to go. And so in this moment of crisis, when eventually uh, war comes, the people can't rely on this king. They don't know whether he'll be able to lead them out of this moment of crisis. But something interesting happens. We've noted that the siege is actually part of God's plan. But the word that Micah brings to the people is he says, pick up your arms and fight. He says, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Now, he doesn't prophesy victory. That's not why he's telling them to pick up arms. In fact, it seems that the only thing he prophesies is survival to some extent, because he speaks of a future day. One day, a king will come, a ruler who will give them peace, who will defeat all of their enemies and bring them back into a time of prosperity. So we should take note of this. This is so interesting that Micah doesn't prophesy that their immediate circumstance is going to change. He doesn't prophesy victory in the moment, but he says, I call you to arms. And there's something for us in this as well. Because at the moment, there are many 
of us who feel overwhelmed by our current circumstances. That might be work or just work from home. It might be the fear of COVID, or it might even be that you're dealing with the consequences of COVID, you're facing it yourself, or you're dealing with what its effects might have been on loved ones. And so what do we do in this time? We might be tempted to give up hope. We might be tempted to just sit back and let things happen. But God's word to us would be the same as what he said to Israel. Muster your troops and fight. Now, what do I mean when I say fight? It might look different for you, but for some of us, it might mean that if you're working from home and you're tempted to slack off, you're tempted to just give up and you say, you know what, I'll just wait until I get back to the office. For you, to fight might mean to actually be diligent and to have integrity and to work well. But for others who have taken work too seriously and are now neglecting their own health, neglecting the health of their families, for you to fight might mean to fight to have time with them, to have time with the Lord even for yourself. And then another way that you can fight is to consider others. To say, what about that friend or that family member that you know that is dealing with the effects and the consequences of COVID? And to say, instead of just sitting at home and making sure that I'm comfortable and safe, make a meal and take it to them. Drop it off for them. Give them a phone call. Pray for them and encourage them. This is how we fight in this moment. My second point is a city with a king. And specifically, Micah prophesied that this king would come. Now, what kind of hope does Micah actually offer? What will this king do for his people? The first thing is that we can see actually the Lord speaks his words quoted here are that one, he says, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. So this king is not just a democratically elected king. This is a king who is appointed by God himself. And historically for Israel, whenever they appoint their own kings, it doesn't go well. But when God appoints a king, things tend to turn out for their good. The second thing is that God calls them he, he calls to mind the place where this king will come from, the city of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was a small, backwards place that no one paid any attention to and no one expected anything of. All eyes would have been on Jerusalem at the time. Everyone would have looked to the wisdom that was in Jerusalem, the strength of the leadership and all of the resources. But God directs their attention otherwise. He says, look to this small city that you think can do no good. And what should have come to mind for them is, what happened last time God called our attention to Bethlehem? You see, God had previously appointed a king, King David, and David was the greatest leader that Israel would ever know. And David was a nobody shepherd boy who came from the town of Bethlehem and who had been appointed by God. So what the people should have done at this point in time is they should have said, God, we see what you're doing here and we're on board. We have faith. We have expectation. We know that you are going to rescue us. Let's look a little bit at, in a little bit more detail about this king and about what else God says about him. He says that he will have a historic lineage. He says his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, what, what does this mean? 
It actually has two meanings. The first is that this king will come from the line of David. He will actually be part of David's bloodline and lineage. And so he will have honor and power and God's support. But the second thing is that there's there's almost this feeling that this lineage will go far beyond David. It will go back to eternity past. And what it was meant to invoke in the people is this idea that this king is not just going to be a man. He's not going to be any man. In fact, he's going to be God himself. Now, Micah also intended that the people would not just take comfort from the knowledge that God would send a king, but that he would send a king who would stand in his strength. It would be a godly king. Let me read from you from from verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of of the name of the Lord his God. So this king wouldn't only be strong, but he would be godly. This king would not only be competent, but he would be humble. And this actually harkens back to King David again. Because in Psalm 21, we can read that David says, in your strength, O Lord, the king rejoices. Now, when I read this, I found this really surprising because I would expect the king of Israel to say something like, I rejoice in the strength and the might of my army. Or I rejoice in the height of my city walls. I rejoice in the gold that fills my palaces or in, the, or in the treaties that I've signed with the nation surrounding me. But he doesn't. He says, I rejoice, O Lord, in your strength. And so this again is actually a word for us. If David, who had all of these resources at his disposal, can say that my strength is in the Lord, then who are we to try to take strength from the resources that we have and the capabilities that we have? Should we not also take our strength from the Lord? So I want to encourage you, if you're feeling overwhelmed by your situation, if you feel too weak to be able to even face the day or the week ahead, instead of relying on what you have or even what you don't have, rather call upon the Lord. If David could call upon the Lord, then surely we can do the same as well. Now Micah's prophecy escalates even further because he says something of this king that no other king has ever achieved is that he will rule to the ends of the earth. He will rule over all nations. And so if you had listened to James's message from chapter four last week, you'd understand that this is God's heart. God's heart is that he wants to send a king. He wants to send a savior. God will be one who's going to fix the entire world. He is going to bring a kingdom which will be so attractive, which will be so perfect, which will have so much peace that all nations will come to the Lord. All will flow to him. And so God is on a mission. God is on a plan. He's on a strategy of restoration for the entire world. And this king will be the one who will bring it to pass. Now this king who was promised did in fact come, but it was far beyond this people's lifetime. In fact, it was 700 years later. But they were called to continue to have faith in God's promises, whatever they might be and in whatever time they might come to pass. So a third quick application point for us in the middle of this text is how how do we deal with God sometimes? Sometimes we expect that he should be the one who supports our agenda and our plans 
rather than us being a part of his plan and of his agenda. You might feel disappointment with God at the moment because of something like your family holiday has been cancelled. And definitely that is disappointing and many of us are feeling things like that. But the question is, do you feel disappointment because of that holiday or do you feel disappointment because some control has been taken away from you? And so true peace doesn't come from when we have total control. True peace actually comes from when we know that God, who is greater than us, is in control and that he is reliable, he is competent, and he has our good at hand. So let's fast forward from the prophecy that Micah brings to actually see what happens. So fast forward 700 years from there, and we're going to look at the king who did come. Finally, this guy arrives on the scene, and it's Jesus. It is humble Jesus who's born in Bethlehem in a cave or in a stable, and he's placed in a manger. There's no, sound, there's no trumpets blaring. There's no royal parade. He comes inconspicuously. Yet, he has a lineage that is traceable all the way back to David. And if you read John chapter 1, his lineage does, in fact, go all the way back to eternity past. But this King Jesus didn't look like the type of king that Israel was expecting. They expected him to come with pomp and power and glory. But, instead, but we can actually see that he didn't ever ascend the throne of Israel. He didn't wage war against Assyria. He didn't care much for policies. He didn't care much for political campaigns or for writing new laws into parliament. Instead, his kingdom, if we look carefully, is about people. He preached good news to the poor. He healed the sick and the lame. He fed the hungry. He uplifted the disgrace. And he even restored back into community those who were the outcasts. He washed others' feet. He healed their wounds, and he even brought the dead back to life. And perhaps most importantly, is that he offered forgiveness to everyone who was estranged from God. To use Jesus' own words, he says of himself, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now the question I ask myself at this point is, is this not a better king? Is this not better than a political king or a king who comes with lots of royal power, but one who cares so deeply for his people, one who will uplift the brokenhearted, one who will restore peace, one who cares about every single individual? This is the kind of king that I want to have. Now Micah also prophesied that Jesus, this coming king, would bring about peace. But what kind of peace would it be? Would it be national peace? It's actually something a little bit different. See, it wasn't peace between Israel and his enemies that Micah was referring to primarily. He was in fact referring to peace between God and man. So if you rewind back with me to the story that was happening at the time, Israel's problem wasn't so much Babylon or Assyria. That was not their conflict primarily. Their conflict was with God. They had made God their enemy, and that is why they had found themselves in this dire situation. And so what they needed was to have their conflict with God resolved. What good will it be for us if we have national peace, but we're still enemies with the living God? 
The siege was God's means of discipline against Israel. And so what they should have done is return to the Lord with repentance. What they needed was his ultimate forgiveness. And the same is true for us. We are, we are rebels and we are sinners and we are treacherous. And we need to repent and we need God's forgiveness, just as the people of Israel did. This brings me to the point of shepherd, because Micah promised that Jesus would be the shepherd of his people. And in fact, Jesus loved this analogy and he uses this name for himself. He calls himself the good shepherd. He says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now that comes maybe as a bit of a surprise. Why would a shepherd ever lay down his life for his sheep? Why would he go that far? Well, it depends what kind of enemies the sheep are facing. And so for the nation of Israel and for us, what we're facing again is the conflict with God. What we're facing is the fact that to have restoration, there must also be justice. Forgiveness always comes at a price. If you're in conflict with someone and they have done you harm and they have caused you loss and you, want, you feel like you want to forgive them, sometimes you feel conflicted because you want to forgive, but you know that this forgiveness has a price. Justice must also be meted out. And this is what Jesus does. He allows forgiveness to happen by having the justice meted out upon himself. He came to be one of his flock to identify with the people and eventually to become their substitute, to become the sacrificial lamb from amongst the people who would bear God's punishment, who would bear the justice that was needed so that they could all receive forgiveness. Can you imagine this? Do you understand the gravity of a king who would die for his people? We're not used to this. We're not used to thinking of a king who ever puts his people ahead of himself. But this is the kind of king who Jesus is. He says, I will bleed for every one of my people. And then in a show of victory, three days later, he rises from the grave, being vindicated by God that he has, in fact, achieved the deliverance from sin and from rebellion that the people so desperately required. And so this is for us to rejoice in, to know that our conflict with God is done. It is resolved. It is in the past. And he will never again bring it against us. This is incredible, incredible news. And this is the way that Jesus not only brings peace, but becomes our peace. Because he is the one who achieves it. And he is the one that we place our faith in and that we identify with before the Lord. How incredible. Next, I want to talk about a king who will come again. You see, because God's not one only for half measures. He said that this king would rule over the entire earth, and that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. He will come again, and he will extend and establish his kingdom over the entire world. He will gather all of his people to himself who've come to trust in him, and he will bring judgment upon his enemies who continue to be in conflict with him. Having made peace between God and man, Jesus, when he comes again, will now turn to the conflict between people and between nations, and he will resolve it. Now, some of us are rightly discouraged and disturbed when we see what's happening in the world today. 
And we wonder, God, when are you going to come? When are you going to do something about this? When are you going to arrive on the scene and make things right? I'm sure the people of Israel at the time of their siege were asking similar questions. They were saying, God, have you forgotten about us? Are you not going to protect us? But yet, outside of their lifetime, God was working. He had a plan. He had a purpose. And so for us, we can take, um, we can take courage in the same way. To know that even if we don't understand what God is doing right now, we can know that he is faithful because he has come once. He will come again and he will bring to pass everything that he's promised. And so I want you to know that when you look at the world and you see the devastation and you see the brokenness and you hope for restoration, that it all hinges on the return of the king. And yes, that is a Lord of the Rings reference. I just have to put it out there. I couldn't get away from it. It was just, it was just there up for the taking. If you haven't read The Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien, or you haven't seen the movies, do it. All right, back, back to the text, back to the text. If we have this hope in God that we cannot be idle, we cannot expect that, this, that there's nothing for us to do in this time. And Jesus gives us very clear instructions. He says that we're to be his witnesses and his ambassadors. We're supposed to bring peace, to share peace with others, but at the same time also care for them as we go. And so we use the tools of his kingdom, which means sacrificial acts of kindness. It means good deeds. It means loving others. And every single one of those acts is actually a brick that is laid in the coming kingdom. And now let's look at my last point, which is a devoted city. So far, we've only addressed what Micah has said about what this king would do, did do, and will still do for his people. But what about what he will do in his people? Before I actually read the text, I just want to give you an example so that you you have some handles as as we read it. Have you ever walked into a new job and you walk into the building and you don't understand the culture, you don't understand the relationships that people have with one another or with the management, the CEO and the shareholders, and you feel a little bit perhaps like an imposter? feel like you don't belong. Or maybe a different scenario that many of us will have encountered is you start a relationship with a a girl or a guy and maybe after a few months they take you to a family gathering and you walk through the door and you're intimidated because all of these people have a shared history. They understand how their family works, how it operates, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. They know one another and they fit together but you come in and you feel like an imposter. You feel like an outsider. And so what we're going to read here is that God wants to address that in us so that when we walk into his kingdom, we will not be imposters, but we will in fact be children who belong in the kingdom. So I'm going to read for us from chapter 5, verses 9 through to 15. God's speaking here and he says, Your hand shall be lifted up above your adversaries. And all of your enemies shall be cut off. In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off all of your chariot, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land, and I will throw down your strongholds. I will cut off the sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. 
In anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance and justice on the nations that did not obey. Now, this seems scary and it seems frightening, but what God is doing here is he is making sure that his people will be fit to be a part of his kingdom. He doesn't want, them, he doesn't want us to be imposters, but he wants us to be children of his own heart, children after his own heart. And so he, cleans, he promises to cleanse his people from all of their false worship and from all of their idolatry and from all of their false security. Because these things have no place for God, amongst God's people. And his goal is to create a people who are singularly devoted to him, who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, why would we have such devotion? Why would we singularly devote ourselves to the worship and the honor and the glory of a king like this? And I think the answer is almost self-evident. It's because he's worthy. A king who has come to rescue his people, who has given up everything, who has even bled and died for his people. How could you not put up your hand and say, this is the king that I want to honor. This is the king whose kingdom I want to be a part of and I will give everything to follow him. And so, as for Israel, it is for us. We cannot continue to place our strength, our hope in high city walls or in our bank balance or in our employer. Instead, what we need to do is what we should have been doing all along, is to trust in the Lord with all that we have and to worship Him. And when this happens, then God starts to change our hearts and we go from being treacherous rebels instead to being children after his own heart. Children who by his spirit love him and honor him and are devoted to him. So as I close up, I've just got three quick points that are takeaways for you, some handles. The first one is to remember that God does not default on his own agenda. It might not be your own agenda, but it is his and we can be a part of it. Because he's been faithful in the past, we can remember and trust that he will be faithful in the future. And so I'd encourage you to pray, to lay down your plans before the Lord and say, I have these plans for my business or for my employees or for my job or for my family or for my holidays. And say, but God, what is your agenda? What is your plan in all of these areas? How do you want me to deploy my resources, my time, my energy? The second thing is that I want you to look forward to the day when we, are like, we will experience the fullness of God's presence, when our King will come. I speak to many people who often have a false hope and they just wonder, they, they hope that tomorrow will be better than today or next month and next year will be better than today. But that's not rooted or based in anything. But we can have hope that one day it will be better when our king arrives in fact it will be perfect we will have perfect peace and so we don't need to have a fanciful hope in tomorrow we can have a concrete hope in a king who will make everything as he wants it to be and then my last point for us is whose kingdom are you building and what tools are you using what decisions can you make this week that will prioritize jesus and will make him look like the lord that he is in I'm sure you've got friends and family who are sick and who are suffering. Pray for them. Take them a meal. Encourage them. Maybe you have colleagues who are burnt out at work. 
put up your hand and say, how can I help you? Can I take a burden off of you? I'll give you a very real example. My company is currently undergoing a management change. And so for me to build the kingdom of God means to not sit back and complain and to moan, but to rather say, how can I pray for my management? How can I encourage them? How can I inspire them? See, the kingdom of God is real and it is coming and we get to be a part of it even today. So in a few moments, we're going to sing a response song, but I'd just like to pray for us. Father, as we've heard, you are a God who takes rebellion seriously. You are a God who takes injustice seriously. You have a plan to restore all of the broken things that are happening in this world. But you will not do it through the means that the world expects. You will do it through your King who brings peace by His own blood. And so God, I pray that today we would place our faith in this wonderful King, this mighty King who has promised to come, who did come, and who will come again. God, may we look to you with expectation and with anticipation. And may we look away from the comfort and the security and the safety of our own homes and rather look to others and say, how do I build this kingdom? How do I share the news of this King who I can place my faith and my trust in? God, would you help us to do this? And would you help us to honor you? May we glorify your name because you are worthy, Lord. Worthy of our praise, you're worthy of our adoration because there is none who is like our God. There is none who is like our God. So we say we love you and we trust you and we worship you and we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.